take it, Michael. I'm sorry. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Regeneration Podcast. Hello, friends. Michael Martin here. We, Mike and I are just talking about bees because uh, we both keep bees and we're comparing our, our years. We showed our swag, but we don't sell swag. That's why it's totally yeah. fine to do it. Our kids make us stuff with uh, well, we will. Regeneration logo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so so we're talking about bees because this is the end of the year. Don't I know and, it? Yeah. And it's really different. It's really for, for you know for a farmer like me. It's this time of year is really different because everything kind of slows down, and then my attention shifts to other things like like storing firewood, splitting firewood out, which I haven't had much of a chance to do. I still have, but we have we probably have enough already split to last maybe four or five months. Mm-hmm. So, but I still have, there's a bunch out in the woods that I cut up that I haven't brought in and I have to do that. But anyway. The seasonal so nature of it all. It's a different, it's a different vibe right now. And yeah, especially, it's nice. It's very pleasant. It's, when it's sunny, it's so pleasant. When it's rainy, it's not bad. But today here is sunny fall. Every, you know, the bees, again, we, we also harvested our honey. There's something very bittersweet about that fall activity more than raking the leaves, I find, more than um, the, the change in temperatures or the first frost. But, uh, a certain type of sadness with that but um you were saying michael no just just everything changes and so much. it's a, it's so different the rhythm right now which it takes me a, a minute to get used to but actually now my attention has changed toward deer hunting because oh, okay. you have to start planning for that yeah um but anyway, yeah so and, and bonnie has been uh making apple butter and apple sauce and stuff like that amy's making what was the latest oh we want to make a gardenia is that it the uh um oh it it can be used on a sandwich it's like it's got a wonderful blend of olive and like vinegary stuff and then all these like celery and things quite spicy oh a norland sandwich is made from this i did not know Um, yeah garden gardenia or something like that anyhow we want to make it we're fermenting a bunch of stuff too but anyway celery still in the garden right the celery and it's super tasty Store-bought celery a lot of stuff. celery there's, is the greatest distinction. Yeah. We have there's a lot still in the garden because we haven't had a frost yet, which is weird. Yeah. You know, for Michigan. But anyway, we? we're not here to talk about bees no. and farming, though it's nice to talk about those things. We're here to talk about my friend and talk with my friend. And Karen I get to hear Rollin how you met. Pryor, Notorious KSP is, is in the house, people. <laughs> and I first met Karen. I had to be 12, 13 years ago through Facebook. Through and Facebook, of all things. Wow, wow, wow. And she wrote an endorsement. Did you hit like on something? Did you give one of these? I don't know if they had that then. They just probably I think they had, did. They had you know, this. And they didn't have much in those days. That was before they became an arm of the government. Absolutely. <laughs> but but Karen was so kind to, to write uh, an endorsement for my my first volume of poetry, Meditation mm. Times of Wonder, back in the day. And right around that time, tell me if I would get this right. Karen's book, Booked, came out right around then, right? Yeah, yes, and that came out in 2012. So, yeah, yeah. Look, your math is pretty good. Yeah. And and Karen is uh, my kind of person. You know why? Because she's an English professor who actually yeah. likes books. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine. I know the students don't like books. None of those professors like books. Breaks my heart. Not There's like, certainly not any secondary no. high school uh, uh, English departments that like talk about books. I know that. 
I what? Didn't really know what yeah. That's, I love oh. I love teaching. I didn't literature. know it went that high. I didn't know it went that high, but I'm but not Karen, surprised. Karen, in fact, I was just thinking about this in getting gearing up for our discussion with Karen, because when I met Karen, she was teaching at Liberty University. And what I just fell in love with her with this one post on Facebook where she wrote something, and I'm probably paraphrasing, but it's pretty, pretty close that she said that one of her students came in to talk after class about a poem by John Donne that she was unclear about. And Karen said, this is why I teach right here, yeah, right? Yeah. And that's my that's my kind of person right there. So I welcome to the Regeneration Podcast, welcome, Karen, Karen Swallow Pryor. <laughs> Thank so you. glad to have you here. That's Thank you for that beautiful memory. I mean, I don't remember that, but um, that's actually how I used Facebook when I first got on it is to to kind of expand my classroom and talk about literature and spread the love of literature. So, yeah. And, and a lot of, and, and we both know, a lot of English professors do not do that. No, yeah, no, no. But I, I, yeah, I had a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, but I do. I'm one of, I'm, I'm the type that gets all excited when I talk about stuff in literary topics. I think I was rather blessed then. And again, I'm a critic of all education, not just higher ed. I, I, I must have lucked out. I, I didn't, I, all I can say is I know I didn't take advantage of probably what they were offering me, but even if I was mature enough to do it, I still think I probably would have lucked out in most English professors and even secondary uh, uh, high school English teachers because mm -hmm. they're out there. That's a point, but you're saying they're in much shorter supply than I would know. Well, it's not that they're in short they're not supply. Surprised. It's just yeah. the ones that really love literature are in short supply. There's, yeah. there's plenty of English professors. And it, couldn't that be that they've resisted the ones who love literature? I want to think that a lot of them got into it for the love of literature. But the ones like our guest, they had the courage to not go with the flow. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's flow. most? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's an issue of courage. And I, and Karen, tell me, I think you get you received your doctorate in English from SUNY New York, right? Yeah, State University of New York at Buffalo, and they're, yeah. very, oh. big, they're very big on theory there. And so uh, Michael, well, Michael, I guess Michael one and two. You can use Mike, Mike for me and Michael <laughs> Mike, for him. Okay, Mike, like you just touched on, like that is my whole story of like, it took a lot of courage to just kind of get through intact and loving mm -hmm. my literature. So we won't courage, get into yeah. that, but yeah, yeah, it was it yeah. was very hard. It was hard. I should hard. write to my former professors then and say, thank you for yeah. your courage. Well, well not seriously, only, right? not yeah. only as a person who loves literature, but as a Christian who loves literature, and let's let's compound it even more for, for poor Karen, as an evangelical Christian who awesome. loves literature. Awesome. She was a triple threat player in, in university. <laughs> I, I, it's really true. It's true. Yeah. The swords were out <laughs> and for that's, years. And sister. that's what Karen's book booked is about it's it's a love letter to literature and I love it, it. and then was it right after that that you wrote uh, you were Xena hits before Xena hits was Xena hits. convictions about Hannah Moore right yeah and that was drawing on my uh, PhD dissertation which I did manage to to write in that program um and get out um yeah, so yeah, that, that book was a sort of a trade version of my dissertation. And here's another thing. So every, now, sometimes, not all the time. So this semester I was teaching humanities. And one of the units of the humanities curriculum is to do stuff on, uh, well, 
the the enlightenment romanticism and you know kind of the transatlantic slave trade crosses over there and there's this film i don't know if you've seen it mike but it's i think it's one of the great films of the early 21st century is uh amazing grace which i'm Have sure Karen knows and yeah. i was thinking it, of amistad it's know, about is... it's about william will wilberforce yeah 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 and it's really beautifully made and but hannah moore is in the film and i always oh. every time i see it i think i wonder what karen thinks of this performance <laughs> no it, it's actually good and i i when i was doing my dissertation i finished it in 1999 which is a ancient history but no one had heard of hannah moore i mean they had when she would you know there was a at, at her time but she had been forgotten and when that film came out it was a it, she was just being rediscovered and now there's a whole new generation of younger scholars that are studying her and appreciating her in a more nuanced way uh so it's very exciting to see her get her due yeah right and uh it's exciting to see you at the once again karen was at the vanguard of this whole thing now we're here to today to talk about Karen's newest book, and mostly, I mean, we can talk about other stuff too, because Mike and I have ADHD and we don't stay on. <laughs> I want to talk about your article on Walt Whitman at some point, but we'll save it. But it, but here we go. <laughs> the awesome. evangelical, the evangelical imagination, and I love the subtitle. It's so intriguing. How stories, images, and metaphors created a culture in crisis. So this I. Karen, I mean, it's a great book. I mean, I was enjoying reading it this week. And uh, I couldn't, you know, now Karen comes from the evangelical world and Mike and I come from the Catholic world. And I come from probably bizarro world in as far as Catholic world goes. But uh, what struck me reading this and knowing you as I do and knowing your history, I mean, you've had, I mean, I've had a few, I've had a few rough years. And so is Karen. I mean, Karen, how long did you get hit by? Karen was literally hit by a bus. Wow, Karen. That was how many years? Seven years ago? Five, five years ago, 2018. Years ago. Mm -hmm. It's a and feather in your cap, even if it was a cast on your back. Yeah. <laughs> and but and then she left Liberty, right? Mm -hmm. And you went to the Southern Baptist University. No, which you left? Southeastern Theological. Southeastern. Yes, at which I just left. Yeah. Where was that left. located? What city? In uh, Wake Forest, North Carolina. Huh. And so is this the only time probably in the last 20 years or so that you have not had a full-time teaching gig? Yeah, the last time in the last 25 years. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow. How's that yeah. feel? You're like you're like the teacher's teacher. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it wasn't my plan and it's it's been hard, but um, you know, I had to exercise courage and do what was right. And, and that's what I, one of the things yeah. I love about Karen is um, you can see, I mean, she's very honest and open and shares, <laughs> whether it's on social media or other places, you know, her, her deep faith and her, I mean, we all kind of struggle to trust God when we go through mm -hmm. those, those weird things that happen, those horrible, you know, life-changing events, like getting hit by a bus. <laughs> Or in my case, you know, when my college closed and then a couple of years later, my wife ended up with uterine cancer. Mm. You know, those those moments, you know, they don't they test their faith, but they're also opportunities to see what faith really is. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I, I understand that. Now, and so short story long, you know, so uh, so like you, 
I mean, I had the, the last seven years or so have been uh, a period of internal spiritual adjustment, shall we say, for me. And I and I and I and I, when I read your book, when I read your book and read it, I I get that same sense, mm -hmm. but from an uh, evangelical perspective that I have been undergoing myself you know kind of this will be fascinating searching and there's um it's kind of like uh stepping off into the void in in a sense and i don't mean to sound ominous or anything but i but i think there's something profound here and i think that's what you mean by created a culture in crisis so I wanna, can you talk about what you mean by how stories images and metaphors created a culture in crisis mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, you know, it's a funny, there's a funny story about that subtitle, because the title of the book was the one I always had in mind, it was kind of a no brainer. Um, but in developing the subtitle, you do that, you know, close to the time the manuscript is being turned in, and there are a lot of editors and marketers involved in it. And I know my, my, um, my acquisitions editor suggested the word crisis earlier on and I said no 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 I don't want that word in there it's too you know it sounds too dramatic and clickbaity um but then by the time I mean it clearly is about stories images and metaphors so that part was a given but by the time I was ready to turn it in and finish it up I was like okay let's go with crisis <laughs> um, because as you said Michael I mean the past few years for many of us for for sometimes different reasons but I think overall maybe the same, it does feel like a, a great shift under our feet, a sifting thing, you know, the old categories don't hold, the ground is moving, um, you know, it, it, you know, and as I say in the book, I mean, it, it, it could, you know, I think it's a 500 year moment, but maybe it's like a 1000 year moment, not to be overly dramatic. I've always it's, thought it's a 1000 year moment and have read, you know, read that, written about it many, many times, like, because well, we let's talk about that. Yeah. It would yeah. just be the, um, the, the church, according to Chesterton, has died and resurrected five times, you know, and it's not that it gets sick and it gets better, but it's died, you know, first at Pentecost, then the Aryan crisis, the Albigensian. And um, something about, so we have those kind of cycles and we have like Oswald Spengler and so forth. But I think we're just coming out of something that's, well, let's say a thousand. Yeah, that's something maybe post Charlemagne, you know, that I'd say it took the gospel and put it into the musical register of a thing called a religion. This thing where you do these things to get to place A called heaven and a place, place B called hell. And, and we focused on the overworld. And I think we're moving back into a musical register coming from the gospel of language having to do with healing and so forth. Mm -hmm. Themes of friendship, themes of courage. And, the you know, from the Latin, the edge of Latin, Latin is top down, very top down. I've heard it said, I'm sure you're a linguist more than I am. But the same phrase said in Greek feels liberating and from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. And this can coincide, too, with the age of... Uh, Honestly, you know, say from the age of Pisces to the age of Aquarius, but let's say a thousand year cycle, some of that, you know, or maybe again, the domination of the, uh, the self image is that of a book to the self image. It's finally just settling into us. We are seeing ourselves as computers now, you know, working around people who are dying. They say themselves as shutting down. That was a big thing for Ivan Illich as well. Some of those epistemic things are huge for me. Hmm. Well, no, <laughs> a little no, more than I, you asked for. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I really, I want to read your stuff. I mean, I'll be completely honest. The process of writing this book uh, and what I've been 
the shifting that I'm going through has led me to, to more thinkers that are adjacent to your circles. And, you know, that's a, I mean, I'm very unversed in them, but I am going in that direction. Give slowly. us an example. <laughs> um, uh, well, I think I asked, did I ask you, Michael, I asked you for, uh, uh, your recommendation of, of, um, Paul Kingsnorth. Yes. Right. And so I got Savage Gods and I've been reading that and it's, a, it's just, it's, okay. it's, uh, yeah, it's amazing. I feel seen and heard and, um, and then I'm also, um, you know, I'm, I'm doing some, uh, reading on um participation um and Owen Barfield I mean, type stuff or yeah Owen Barfield and then a, a little <laughs> more yeah yeah um, we know where you're headed probably we have remember when Spencer Clavin was saying the same thing you know that all of a sudden he had to crack a book by Rudolf Steiner and we all feel guilty or something like that yeah. I mean no I mean this this all again even though it's new to me it just it's giving me language and understanding yeah. and the idea of a 1000 year moment. Like I was just writing some notes because this, this really makes sense to me. But then if we went from book to computer though, I wanted to ask you, Mike, so what, what's the next metaphor? Well, so I mean, so it's, you know, we came from, you could say this, I think it's, if we keep it to Owen Barfield, the caveman's consciousness was fully participatory, right? Mm -hmm. And then we kind of get liberated from that. We have the, you know, the growth of the eye, especially at the incarnation. And now the, the danger of systems, right, is that Ivan Illich would say that we went from being one with everything, so we had a tool. In the Middle Ages, the word for tool meant the hammer, the hand, and the hammering hand. It was no separation. Mm -hmm. you know, then we went to the instrumental reason and so forth. But right now, in the age of the computers, is it a regression to the original participation where, um, you know, you know, it's the same thing. Are we moving towards a community or a regression to a crowd formation? But some of these things are really really epistemic too you know so i would say the computer is the image we're using but are we going to have a new oneness with technology but also keep our separation or are we mm -hmm. going to be grafted into it which is some of this with. ai scare by letting our right brain atrophy completely and we're all left brain weirdos and then it's the apocalypse something I mean, like and that's that. the threshold moment though right it's the threshold I mean, moment. which way is it going to go yeah but i and i just it's really to, heavy just to, to <laughs> riff on that a little tiny bit i mean in fact, I wrote about it today in in my Substack. Is uh, and you and this the idea of the of the Celtic idea of the other world, right? Mm. Where uh, and I see students getting some students, you know, some young people getting this. Not everybody, but I see it. We see it in Paul King's North. See it in Martin Shaw, Shaw right? Where they're kind of, I mean, they're kind of they have one foot in the tradition and one foot invoking a kind of christianity of the wild right mm -hmm. um it, which which when i was when i when, when spencer and i were in dc back when was that in july um the way i articulated it was uh you know i asked the question paul paul vanderclay talking speaking of evangelical christians paul was there and one of the, th the the main question i had burning on my heart at that 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 moment when i gave that talk was is a phenomenological disclosure of Christianity possible? Right. Great way of and I think that, that might be, you know, this the threshold we're we're at, and it could go into that direction, or it could go into complete complete uh, technocratic capture. It could go either yeah. way, right? Michael, can yeah. I share one? Just 
our friend Lindsay Rose had a tweet that I thought on this issue was just spellbinding, spellbinding. And you use the other world, you know, I tend to use the underworld, but she said, I think it was yesterday. And I wrote her and thanked her for it. It's a tweet that said, I think Stephen Clark, a guest we had on who's very conversant with the Native American traditions. Um, I think Stephen Clark is right. We have spent millennia trying to escape through transcendence, but we failed to uh, we failed to the edict to follow instead of worship, right? We're supposed to follow. That's what I'm saying with religion. We spent a thousand years just the worship. And she said, we're entering the underworld generations, hark to Persephone. Even Dante learned that the way out is through. Some of this stuff, you know, through and not out. Um, and I could send even a quote from Coventry Patmore, who said kind of the same thing, the same thing. The pagan who simply believed in the myth of Jupiter, Alcema, and Hercules, much more than he who had been initiated into the unspeakable names of Bacchus and Persephone, knew more of living Christian doctrine than any Christian who refuses to call Mary the mother of God. And we'll just say the divine feminine at this point. But understanding this underworld stuff of Persephone is super important now. The role of the feminine. Coventry Patmore, like my Coventry Patmore. Yeah, 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 he's wild. Yeah. Wow. Oh, no, guys... his later career. Gerard Manley Hopkins told him he could never publish a book on his Eros poems and so forth. And it's lost to posterity like Beethoven's Incomplete Symphonies. Mm -hmm. He burned the book that we would all love to read. Coventry Patmore, I mean, Gerard Manley Hopkins told Patmore in his later stages, you've revealed too much. It makes the Song of Songs look like child's play. But um, Angelico Press has, you know, The Rod, the Root, and the Flower, which is a great introduction to how rich and totally deep Coventry Patmore can be. Oh yeah, Angel of the House, that's so funny. He's hidden behind doilies and things, this wild furnace of craziness. Yeah. Wow, you guys are gonna have to send me a reading list. I should have asked you ahead of time, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's the crisis, right? That's the it's one crisis. I was talking about, but you got... <laughs> now, now, interesting, so I mean, so my doctorate is in... Uh, early modern English literature. So basically I tell people and they say, well, what did you get your doctorate in? Basically Protestant mysticism. <laughs> that's, basically, that's what I did. So I always tell people I'm, I'm like 90, you know, I'm like 48% uh, 17th century An Anglican. Huh. And, and I want Robert Herrick to be my pastor. But, uh, but I know that the territory very well, especially in the 16th century where, and you write about this in the book, that's why I want to bring it up the anxiety about images which you see mm -hmm. in edmund spencer you see it in milton right and and you talk about the the protestant or evangelical anxiety about images and how things shifted from the image to you know, like in catholic culture to the word right mm -hmm. to, and especially to preaching um right. but But the thing, but even and here's the thing: we're English, we're English professors. We know how important the image in the word is. And, and is that something you're, you're you're contending with in in and not just personally, but in the book as well? Yeah, I mean, I'd have to say personally, I have contended with this a lot because um, because not only am I Protestant, but like I've been Baptist almost my entire life, and so I have struggle to overcome sort of my my privileging of you know the word and words uh but my love of images and and uh and so I think this is part of my sort of 
uh, personal crisis and the one I am addressing in the book, uh, because it's not either or, it's both and, right? But my tradition does not deal with that very well. And so I, I'm not claiming that I have dealt with it well, but I think I am in the book trying to raise um, the tension and address it to at least begin to, to better understand it. Because I, again, I think this contributes to um, the crisis as well. I mean, it's really um, axiomatic now in evangelicalism to, to recognize that so many younger and not necessarily younger evangelicals are kind of leaving um, the, the, the traditional evangelical church for more liturgical experiences, um, even Catholic churches. I've seen a lot of my, you know, Baptist evangelical students convert to Catholicism. So there's obviously something missing. There's obviously some some imbalance that we're not bringing into proper tension. And uh, that, that's an ongoing matter. And I, again, I think it's part of this crisis. But but I on the other hand I, I mean I see the same uh, the pr same problems well I see I see a lot of young people attracted to those liturgical traditions hmm. whether it's Roman Catholicism or Orthodoxy right I mean I think it's what happened to Paula Kings North and even people who aren't evangelical who <laughs> we always see that as a problem right well they're attracted <laughs> to the it only because, people in the world who think wow you went too far bro I don't well no I, but I think they want a sensual experience of the of the spirit yeah, yeah. right I get it I get it yeah, and they and and it's weird, I mean, if you look at the history of the church, I mean, part of the, in the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation was rejecting the sensuality, you know, uh, considering it a kind of a trap or a lure, right, or a deception. But, then, you know, fast forward 500 years. Now, how many Protestant churches don't have a praise band in a stage, right? And, and, the, and the criticism of and during the, the Reformation was that the Catholic mass was nothing but theater. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's kind of funny. Um, but I think but I think what's what's important, and I think what I, what I love about your book, Karen, is that you're you're not afraid to go there you're not afraid to go there and just like mike and i in, in the regeneration podcast are not afraid to go there in regards to the tradition in which we were raised mm -hmm. right in which we you know we, our faith was formed you know and that's it which which I've never makes heard it described that way it makes, it makes me like nervous you, all of a sudden yeah, yeah. it makes for a i was just doing it now that it has a name it makes me creeped <laughs> out yeah well it makes for a peculiar <laughs> moment right it's a weird it's a weird place we're in yeah mm -hmm. you know and you know and i mean i don't know to think about it i mean and and of course the, the elephant in the room we haven't mentioned is that i mean culturally in at least in this country and across the west christianity is in decline right at least superficially it is right, right? right i mean right. Yeah, well, yeah 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 yeah, yeah right right this is one of these mysteries. Right, right, right. And, the, you know, and that, yeah, all the headlines and all the polls and surveys are about that. But maybe, you know, maybe um, from the margins, the remnant will emerge, not to sound so, you know, like um, apocalyptic, but, um, you know, those, those are words I've always heard other people say. But also, let's, let's, let's go back to Barfield for a second. You know, couldn't mm -hmm. the final participation be, as it brings together the the one and the many, like the Trinity, total total individuality, total union, it brings together 
the male and the female, brings together these seeming opposites, you know, weaves in contradictions. That's what something I loved about your article, Karen, on Walt Whitman, you know, that the American charism that we can bring when this iteration of the church dies is a real appreciation for the one and the many. That's going to be our thing. I think Our Lady of Guadalupe is somehow behind that, too. But that's a song this land is singing. So we need, I'm always saying we need a marriage of the kind of that Western Catholic tradition with the uh, the earthborn tradition of Whitman, um, for me, Cervantes, um, Rabelais, Shakespeare. But the, um, and your article get into that. But the, even, even, I guess this is my point, the Christian, the atheist, and the believer, right? This is what Dostoevsky was pointing to, that this is becoming, it's really becoming a little more murky than people think, right? You know, I believe in transubstantiation. That's an interesting comment nowadays. You know, what does that mean? What does mm -hmm. that mean? Um, mm -hmm. You know, and mm -hmm. so what What was the point of Henri de Lubach's book, you know, the drama of atheist humanism about, you know, what is some of the, what is some of the dark draw to Dostoevsky? And I repeat this anecdote again, that in his lifetime, um, oh, the great scholar, that patristic scholar, Theophane the Recluse, the most well-read mind in patristics at his lifetime, was reading Dostoevsky and said, he sees more than any church father has seen, right? These are some of the things arising in our time, you know. But it's, it's just so interesting and surreal as someone who came from, you know, a fundamentalist adjacent evangelical background, um, studying all of these things, learning these things about like post-modernity for 20 years. I taught my students about what post-modernity was and, and, and initially kind of in that alarmist way that I was taught, but eventually much less so and and more in a more nuanced way but this is this is really what we are talking about like the categories breaking down the end of of the reign of reason and rationalism alone um something more synthesized something more i don't know i mean you just you you put it in better words than i can but it's 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 surreal and it's hard and disorienting but it's also exciting and good i think mm -hmm. absolutely um so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, uh, I mean, it's exciting. So, for instance, where we live, you know, we live in rural Michigan, and it's weird because you know, <laughs> being a professor, living in a rural Michigan, those are those worlds could not be more different. And the people I mostly uh, interact with here are either other farmers or the Amish. I mean, I use the Amish. Um, we go to an Amish grocery store, and you know, we use Amish. Uh, we we buy feed for our animals from the Amish, and I mean, you you can't get any more evangelical than the Amish. <laughs> They're hardcore, right? They think they think you know, Baptists are modernists, right? Well, wait, I get along with you guys so well, and because they they, I mean, you get the sense, and I I think this is one of the one of the currents that's running through our culture right now is it's almost like a back to the land movement, but it's also back to, back to reality. And I mean, a Christian reality movement, which is so encouraging to me because, you know, you know, I joke, I mean, these comish guys, they're so funny. They're always joking around with me about this or that, or and all they want to talk about is deer hunting. And, uh, 
but there's i mean and i like this i mean i like this and you see this but it's so easy for it to become derailed into something ideological right mm -hmm. and but i but I, but there is hope like you said karen that we can we can find something authentic at the kernel of it and i think you you mentioned postmodernism and i think of the later writings of Jacques Derrida, when he became basically a, a negative theologian, right? Which is, to me, it was kind of a liberating way to start thinking about religion. And he talks about, what if we talked about a religion without religion, right? And I think he was onto something. And I think that's probably what inspired my idea about uh, a phenomenological disclosure of Christianity. Because what we've had until now the disclosure of Christianity is usually in the hands of the gatekeepers, right? The authorities of the church, right. whether it's the Catholic church or the evangelical, right? Or the pastor or whatever, or in, in like the, in the Orthodox tradition, it's, they're always pointing to the fathers, right? To the tradition, to the fathers. But I think we have here a moment and, 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 and I, it, tell me if you think I'm crazy or not. It seems like a make or break moment where you remember uh oh barfield's book uh romanticism comes of age i mean we, we could write another christianity comes of age because mm -hmm. i think we're, we're at that threshold where that could be possible it's like the second naivete of paul ricoeur the second childhood right again it's this recursion at a higher level um, a return with a difference. These are all the themes. Yeah. And the, the energy of the theme seems to be more akin to not like balancing something. That's what everybody thinks. It's again, that's why Ian McGulker's book on the brain hemispheres is so important that, and this is the Ivan Illich too, when the right brain loses its primacy to send out the left brain for tools. And Karen, this is your work, as far as I understand it. You know, you have your courage because you're willing to flip the thing because we need to reverse the notion of what's primary which is the right brain, which is practical reason. Theoretical reason goes out after that. The feminine is primary, sends the masculine. And so this is kind of an epical change. And I, I took some time there because I see your work doing this. You just smelled your way into this whole thing. And again, I go back to the courage because you were discovering things. But I think it's akin to turning things inside out. But everybody talks about it. Oh, we need to like make the mission of the church equal with the financial administrative. No, no, no. One is there to serve as the tool of the mission, right? These types mm -hmm. of things. Yeah. Now, this is, I mean, you're just giving me language for what I've been seeing and understanding instinctively. And again, in my evangelical world, especially out on the Twitters and in the media, you'll see all this hand-wringing over the young people leading the church and the unchurched and the nuns. And I see them saying, like there, you know, there was a dust up the other day about this that that they have not, they are not abandoning Jesus. They are finding Jesus because they've left the church. And you know, I love the church, and I've always been an institutionalist, but not these institutions yeah. and not this church, right? I mean, so um, yeah, something is happening, and it and it sounds very much like uh, what you're talking about. Right, and I and I and I you know and I know I mean that's <laughs> not talking out of school because you you posted about all this, but you've been hearing <laughs> by the by the church, mm -hmm. right? Right, and so have I, and and that's and, and I get into this with people, you know, whether 
And once in a while, you know, and for me, it's all just coming to terms. They use that term, the church. And I say, okay, what is your definition of the church? And, and often as not, nobody can come up with a definition that mm -hmm. holds any water. It's right. a generality, right? Mm -hmm. And, and the, the church that they and most people are talking and thinking about today is, is a church of, you know, of the past 500 years, not of mm -hmm. eternity, right? Not of uh, the future. And that's weird. What's the weird thing, right? I mean, even, and it's, it's almost inescapable because at, you know, in I, it's in here someplace. I don't know where it is. I have a, a copy of the, the 16, 1564 Geneva Bible. And of course they have on the frontispiece, the, the church not by, made by hands, right? Mm -hmm. The invisible church. Um, but it's, it's, it's not so invisible anymore. <laughs> <laughs> It's, I can see where it is. It's right there. Yeah. <laughs> but that was, I mean, I think that was one of the great contributions of the, of the Reformation, but it, it evaporated quickly. Mm -hmm. it, it went away. I mean, I think that was a, a beautiful intuition because I think that's ab absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in fact, here's an interesting story. So my daughter attends a Methodist, evangelical Methodist university, not too far from here. And uh, one of her friends a uh, young woman who I, was adopted, I think, from China. And the girl, when she she came, she had, and, and the, at the school, so my daughter's there, so she is kind of Catholic. And there are other Catholic kids at the school. And her, her, her friend went to church with one of her Catholic friends one Sunday. Said, I'll go. I always want to see what a Catholic church was like. So she went in there. And she comes home and she tells her her parents, but her her father's a Baptist preacher, and she's basically been excommunicated from her family for even stepping inside of a Catholic church. Um, and the poor kid. I mean, she's eighteen. She's, and the the problem is, I mean, that's the that's the problem when you have the church. You have an idea of what the church is, is. You know, then everybody. Then, I mean, put it, put it this way: if if you 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 subscribe to that uh, concept, the church, then everybody you know is a heretic. Mm. Somebody. Well, this explains my past life, my life for the past like seven years. So, <laughs> right? Um, that's exactly what it's like. A bus hitter. Yeah. yeah, it's like a bus hit me. Yeah, yeah, and then you know the Theo Bros. So <laughs> the Theo Bros first, then the bus. <laughs> what else are you reading, Karen? Or, or it's not to say get personal, but uh, like do in one sense, not saying tell secrets, but you know, bring it for, for listeners. You're super intelligent. What I hear again, you're you've been pushing things and discovering them on the way. You're you're uh, as Rilke would say, a honeybee of the infinite in some way. And you're out there. What describe your journey a little bit. You know, does it, as it feels like, do you get nervous at like you're losing friendships? And again, we're asking from people who aren't secretly thinking <laughs> you're going to end up in Rome or something. None of that. No, oh, yeah, no, no, right. No. So, I, you know, so yeah, yeah where are you? Because yours will be an interesting journey to to hear about and to follow. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So over the past, um, you know, I'd say in the process of, of obviously writing this book, there, there was a lot that I had to read in in history and American culture that I wasn't up to up to 
you know, didn't ever know. I learned a lot in the process of writing this book. But again, because I um, yeah, something early in the conversation reminded me I wanted to to say, you know, because of the way I end the book about just by you know following Jesus as the way. Um, that's plan. yeah, that which yeah, I mean so revolutionary right so novel and original um but so that that's i'm picking up my reading there and so that is why i'm actually rereading owen barfield um saving the appearances specifically some of his other stuff on language um all um king's north as i mentioned um michael gorman is is the sort of um uh Baptist Orthodox, you know, Orthodox Baptist or Evangelical Protestant writer on participation theology, huh. um, Hans Borsma. Um, yeah. yeah, so. And you said Michael Gordman? Gordman, G-O-R-M-A-N. Okay. He, he okay. yeah, he gives sort of an acceptable to um, Evangelicals yeah. take on participation. <laughs> so <laughs> as far as I know, anyway, I. Um, we should abbreviate then, that. A-T-E, acceptable to Evangelicals, boom. <laughs> <laughs> on my fun reading um i read uh because when i try i've been traveling a lot so i try to just take books i want to read for fun um i've read uh uh one of nabokov's early novels i can't now i can't remember the mary, mary i think it's called um but he translated himself and some um new to me short stories by franz kafka i love kafka and i still haven't read all of his work so yeah that's what I've been reading. That's very yeah. cool. So let me ask you this, because one English professor to another. Um, and I, I meaning your your love for literary works is palpable in everything I've read by you. And your love of Christ is also palpable. Now, where do the two meet for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I talk about this some in booked um, because, again, in the in the environment where I grew up, which was, you know, very rural, Maine, um, country Baptist. And, and thank goodness, really, as, as sort of country and rural as I was, it was at least before the sort of, I mean, I'm old enough and was separated enough. So I didn't grow up in that evangelical subculture, even though it was, a you know, pretty, um, uh, you know, conservative environment. And so I just, I did not even, so I don't come from an academic family. I had no vision set before me about an academic life or a literary life or the life of the mind, other than that my parents just let me read whatever I wanted to read and encouraged me to be who I wanted to be and do what I wanted to do. Imagine that. Um, wow, yeah, innovative. <laughs> yeah, know, you yeah. got to read Rudolf Steiner to get that. That's not fair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's only there in Rudolf Steiner. But I never imagined being, you know, being an English professor or anything. Like that. I just, I just majored in English in in college and then didn't know what I wanted to do. So applied to a PhD program serendipitously and got in, and that's where I discovered, oh, there are people who study and teach English who don't really like literature. Okay, that's weird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so wow, it was quite a shock um, because I did have wonderful teachers and, you know, my schooling before that as, as Mike uh, had. Um, and I, it really wasn't until, and so I, by then though, I was really being formed by the evangelical subculture. So really, uh, you know, had a pastor in church that was more, involved in the culture wars. I mean, they were good and I, I love those people still to this day, but that was the ethos of the age. And um, 
And I just, and I was the only Christian in the program uh, and didn't really know, and it was very hostile to Christians. And, um, and it was just in that context where I realized, well, actually I'll, I'll tell you because you'll find this interesting very briefly. Um, I was taking a class on writing reviews, criticism on for popular culture of culture, you know, films and television and books of the month or whatever. And I came to class one day and the students were very upset with the professor because, and they said that there was no way they could complete the assignment because he was asking us to make a judgment on the work. And there was no way we could possibly say whether a work of literature was good or bad. And the light bulb went on for me. I was like, wait a minute. I'm like, of course we can. And, but I didn't know how, I did not know how to answer, I didn't know how to answer them. And so I left the class on a quest to find whoever I could read, whatever I could to address, to say how and why we can say, judge literature and art um, and aesthetics. And, uh, and that's when it all came together for me. And I did eventually developed a course around that Christian poetics and right. um, yeah. So, so it wasn't until near the end of my PhD program when I, figured out how to integrate my love of literature and my love of, of Christ and the church and to serve them all together. Now, here, my memory has just been jogged. Now, I recall a long time ago, a post of you on Facebook. You, in the poetic Facebook, course, I love using, referencing did Facebook. you not use so Jacques Maritain, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. I, yeah, I use him most of the time in the course. Yeah, because he's awesome because yeah. he, he goes right exactly where yeah. there. He, yeah. In fact, he says one place uh, when you, you know, when you send. I, uh, I'm writing notes yeah. in a book by Jacques Maritain called Science and Wisdom, which is this whole kind of oh. Science and Wisdom by Maritain. Oh, but what he says is when you make of your sin, uh, you make your sin beautiful. You send it like an angel amongst your brothers and it kills them without a sound. Right. Which I think is if you're going to talk about whether there's good or bad literature mm -hmm. there. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's point zero. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, he's he's a son. Of course, I have to use a lot of Catholics in teaching this course. <laughs> so uh, because the Catholics have the best aesthetic theory and that, that's something we actually talk about. I always say, why do Baptists and Protestants generally not address this well or what, why do Catholics have all the good art? Um, and so this goes back to what I said before about my own wrestling with word and image, because my tradition as committed as I am and have been to it, um, for a number of reasons, um, I'm seeing that some of the, some of the questions that I have that I can't answer maybe are things that I need to answer. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's the question of iconoclasm, right? Right, right. Which you talk about quite a bit in, in. <laughs> imagination i mean you talk about quite a bit and, and i think that's but it's not it's not just the evangelical tradition it's actually haunts right. catholicism and orthodoxy as well it goes back to mm -hmm. the early years of the church where you know <laughs> when are graven images okay which I mean, of course mm -hmm, mm -hmm. people will say sola scriptura turn to the bible so so god says in, in Exodus, right? thou shall have no more graven images. And you know, a couple of chapters later, he gives instructions how to build the ark filled with graven images. <laughs> okay, guy, can I talk to you for a second? Explain it. You're messing with my mind, guy. Yeah, that's right. What do you mean put put figures? <laughs> Two cherubim 
Aren't those graven images? Not really, <laughs> but technically. And they seem to be doing, the rumor is they were involved in a dirty act. Uh, mm -hmm. That's in the Kabbalah. So, um, so, so to answer my question though, um, where, so where does the, the, the literary and the, the spiritual intersect in your own you know, world of faith, your own, not the world of faith, in your own being of faith? Mm -hmm. Does it? I know it does for me. That's what I'm Absolutely. Question. No, I think, I mean, the, the um, you know, the, the metaphor I constantly return to is, you know, it's a almost cliche or feels cliche to me is Emily Dickinson's tell the truth, but tell it slant, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you should, you know, I, I need to memorize the whole poem, but her whole, because you can't paraphrase it, but I will anyway, but, um, but, you know, her whole point is there's something about what it means to be human that, you know, we can't take the entire truth face on. We can't, you know, we can't look into the light, right? But there's something, I mean, this is even, even Aristotle talks about, like, we, we just delight in imitation. Um, it's a pleasure. And so there's something about seeing something slant, something, uh, feeling that, feeling, it, 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 this is even pedagogical, right? Like, we learn something better when we think we have discovered it, right? And so anything that helps us feel that sense of discovery, even if it's just pointed out to us, which is, uh, you know, by a good teacher, by a work of art, by a poem, by a novel, um, we learn it better. And that's why, again, in, in books, there's a line, it was my, um, it was my working title for a while. I talk about how I just, uh, even growing up as a Christian in a Christian home, um, my my relationship to God was more intellectual and rational and not emotional. Not because I'm not an emotional person. I've actually since discovered that I'm highly sensitive, which explains a, a lot about my life. Um, <laughs> I had a feeling I was highly sensitive. Well, and it's, it's like a high, highly sensitive person. It's a form of neurodivergence, but um, uh, it's, yeah. And so, right. you know, not, so it's like a capital H and that's not like, oh, I'm super uh -huh, sensitive. Uh -huh. um, but uh, it, you know, it's like, so I liken it, lit, what literature does for me as to when God told, um, you know, put Moses in the, in, in the cleft of the rock, just, you know, that he could see the back of God. So literature like allows me to see the back of God because to look at him, you know, to see him fully is just yeah. too much. I mean, so that's what I feel like literature in particular does for me just because right. I'm wired for words, but all art does it. Yeah. Then felt I like some watcher of the skies when a new planet swims into his ken, or like stout Cortez when with eagle, eagle eyes, he stared at the Pacific. And all his men looked at each other with a wild surmise, silent upon a peak in Darien, which is from uh, Keats's uh, on first looking into Chapman's mm -hmm. home, right? Which is about, I'm not the first guy who saw this, but I just saw it for the first time. And it's so <laughs> exciting, right? Yeah. And, that's, and that being, I don't know if you do this, but I can't help it sometimes. So where you cry in front of the students. Have you done that? I have like once, I think. I've done, yes. I do it too often. <laughs> so for instance, we did it a couple weeks ago. We, I was teaching uh, Twelfth Night by Shakespeare. And we got to the recognition scene where mm. where Viola finds her brother Sebastian and they're dressed like each other. And there's this whole question and answer, a cold catechism really. 
And every time I, I teach it, I'm like, okay, I'm wrecked. <laughs> and the students are like, wow, you really lost it there. I shut up. But <laughs> but for me, it's it's the there are these moments, and I, and I uh, Simone Bay writes about one with mm. her engagement with uh, George Herbert's poem Love Three, right? Where she translated into French, and every time she felt a uh, migraine coming on she repeated to herself just to, as a way to keep off the migraine but she said in a letter to father Perrin and, but but eventually it took on the virtue of a prayer mm -hmm. and it was during one of these recitations that Christ himself came down and took possession of her which is why you know my my dissertation was was not not entirely but it was it was inhabited by quite a few metaphysical poets because of that because it, that's there's something in especially religious poetry that can not doesn't always that you, not only do we you know you, you read you know you read jane austen you feel like you know jane austen you read enough jane austen you, you're and we people don't say i'm reading pride and prejudice i'm reading jane austen <laughs> right because you and you feel like you know her right but right. then sometimes, so I feel like I know George Herbert or John Donne or Thomas Traherne. But what happens with those poets for me is once in a while, the subject of their poem shines through the poem mm -hmm. and illuminates my own soul. I mean, which is a pretty extraordinary experience. Mm -hmm. you know, and, I, and I see that with the, the best poets, even we, we mentioned, Mike mentioned Dostoevsky earlier, right? Same thing with Dostoevsky. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'll, the other part that always wreck, wrecks me is uh, in Crime and Punishment, where uh, Raskolnikov asks Sonia to read to read the section of the Saint John's Gospel where where the raising of Lazarus. I'm about to cry now. <laughs> where who was once dead and came to life? No, I mean it's kind of it's pretty extraordinary, mm -hmm. and it, it kills me just thinking about it. You mentioned knowing, this is just a question I've had for literary experts. You mentioned knowing Jane Austen well, you know, and lately I've been reading, you know, that Goethe, a genius, we know everything about him in one sense. Shakespeare, we know very little, you know, even the old authorship question and so forth. But I'm thinking of your work, Karen, you know, of the one and the many, you know, that, um, you know, again, this notion of, the muse and the same, you know, Barfieldian paradigm of the muse used to be outside the person. Then all of a sudden it gets incarnated. Now the muse is the, in the innermost sanctum of where the genius says, I am I, you know, mm -hmm. and this notion of, do we know Shakespeare? Like the more universal the literature is, do we know the author less? It should, in my theory, it should be, we know them as an individual and we know all of humanity blazing as an individual. Does that map onto anything for people who know much more about literature than I do? Mm. Yeah, well, I did a I did an interview earlier today where somebody asked a question about intention. Like we're talking about, I think the Scarlet Letter, and he's like, "Oh, is this what Hawthorne intended?" And I'm, you know, and I thought, you know, like that's such a I didn't say this to the person, but like that's such a not helpful question um, yeah, because yeah. you know because there, because of course a good artist is seeing and intuiting and intending um, things, but doing that well means they escape his grasp and um, and rational mind and still reflect truth 
anyway, um, or, or more so. And so, um, yeah, I, th I think, I think knowing, uh, knowing we, we don't need to know the author to know the work. I mean, sometimes it's interesting and helpful, um, but biographical criticism is probably like one of my least favorite forms of criticism for that reason. Um, although again, we, we can't, we don't want to completely separate. Uh, it's helpful to, to know something about the writer. Uh, yeah. Like Mary Shelley is an interesting uh, case study there. Um, but there, that's that's the transcendence, I guess, of of literature and art, and the and the the reversal, maybe, to use your language. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm wondering if, like, according to the level of genius, to use a funny term, we have less interest in the nature of the author. When the genius mm -hmm. level goes down a little bit, we probably have more nature because we're probably closer together. But like the genius and the person, you know, it's just it's in this wild harmony. You can't untease the two at the heights of the total geniuses, you know. Well, I think I think that's so true. Like I'm I'm sharing a dissertation right now on uh, William Blake and his um and parallels of his vision to Pentecostal theology, just you know, which like sort of accidentally. Um, but it's really interesting because Blake is very interesting as a person, but compared to his works and his genius, like it it's it, it, it yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's his name? You, I, and that's my my claim is that if you really want to know the author, read the works. Yeah. Not the biography, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. you, in fact, I was reading. So I'm right. I'm about to start writing this introduction to uh, Novalis's Christendom or Europe. So I've been reading all this Novalis criticism, and I'm so so disappointed because you know. It's it's the worst thing to read. <laughs> what Rudolf Steiner said, you know, reading a piece of literary criticism is like touching a corpse. Both <laughs> he died and hymns to the night are two totally separate, but they're the same but, event, but, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, so I learned more about reading his actual works about him than I ever could read from any yeah, right, right, right. biography, right? Because mm -hmm. those are those at best are interpretations. But there's something that happens in in the primary experience of the, reading these works which and, and i think it in the best cases not it doesn't always it can open to transcendence mm -hmm. and, the, and the weird weird thing is is you can sometimes you can read the same the same passage or the same book or the same poem a hundred times mm. nothing happens and there's got to be a way of doing time. like criticism biography biographical criticism on an author by people who can also see the poetry in that author's life right it's again, it's like, you know, putting a body under a microscope after it died to see like, what was the story of this person's life said? Well, I think that's right. It's again, it's left brainism in a right brain area. Well, that's the take home of Amadeus, right? The film yeah. and the play, yeah. right? You know, how does the voice of God come through this guy? Yeah. Well, I, again, I think that actually on that one, Michael, kind of like Harry Potter in one way, I almost think the movie Amadeus is a lie because... Uh, what is it makes genius yeah it makes genius look so i mean easy. i think it's a great movie where his works were watered with his tears right it just it makes and that's kind of harry potter just quit it i think it's games. a beautiful story and i think it's things. a beautiful yeah. movie but okay i'm glad you're with me. i don't think you know the guy worked really know, hard yeah. you don't know mm -hmm. mozart from that movie you know him from his music yeah right that's how you know in, in a way that's you you know his but soul. the movie also lied about what we do know of his biography is he worked really really hard and sweated over these compositions you know they make it seem like he was on the shitter and just wrote musical scores on the toilet paper or something <laughs> right and that's a myth we want to believe that's a myth we want to believe yeah that's why people love the movie it makes genius seem super easy mm -hmm. well 
super easy for some. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it didn't make it super easy for Sally. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah. So, so and you end the book, Karen, with, is this where it goes? With the rapture. Is that where it goes? Right at yep. the end, right? Yep. That's the last chapter. Yeah. It's pretty heavy. Wow. Wow. That's like a brick closing. So, so well, first, two things. Um, I want you to connect you know how does liter how does evangelical the evangelical imagination deposit in the rapture and secondly how does that figure into your own thinking now mm. after on this long journey you've been yeah well i mean of course what i'm pointing to in the chapter is you know growing up you know in, in being a child of the 70s and in the midst of all that um rapture theology uh, and and uh, the bad novels that were written and the bad takes the, the nonfiction uh, Al Lindsay's uh, late great planet Earth behind. and yeah left behind all of all of that um, that you know those sorts of stories and myths and legends do have a formative effect on, on people when we believe that the you know the Lord's return is near which of course it is but if we mean that sort of in temporal like it's going to be tomorrow's headlines but it's, and, yeah yeah it's always and, already yeah there. yeah 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 and um it just and and also just again i don't take a side like how how it should be interpreted there are different schools but if it if it's only literal as opposed to literal at as you, as you just it's just that is already mm -hmm. at and not yet um then then we forget the sim we don't even know that there's symbolic and metaphorical resonance for right now and so it forms a people it forms a culture um and it forms our imaginations and of course it produced a lot of bad art and bad fiction um but regardless the, the, the point that we forget which i kind of close on is that that if the rapture, even if the rapture is understood literally, again, I don't come down on that. It was is a, I didn't know it was a novel interpretation invented in the 19th century uh, for a long time, but it also always means that we are to be caught up in Christ, like right now, not just yeah. you know, you know, on the airplane that's going to crash because the pilot's a Christian, but like right now, caught up in, <laughs> in Christ, um, and so that's. That's what we have overlooked. That's what our imagination right. has been, uh, the lack of which has deformed our imagination. Right. Yeah, and I think, you know, wow. and I tell people, and this is actually, I was into this for a while. I mean, I still am, but I wrote about it kind of extensively a few years ago in a few a couple of books. But the, the, the word parousia mm -hmm. doesn't mean second coming. Mm -hmm. It means presence. Mm. Right? So coming into the presence of the Lord. Mm. Karen's big on songs because she mentions all kinds of songs in this book and she yeah. starts off I think the first anecdote is about you with your niece at a concert right yeah Mumford and Sons Mumford and Sons oh, wow. and she has a footnote it's the best footnote in history about <laughs> unless you have a cool aunt or something like this right well, thank you Marie. I tried to make some of my footnotes funny, oh, that killed me you are the first one to comment on the footnotes. So wow, I, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Yeah, you're a close you're, reader, you read you know the thing, right? Thank you. Thank you. It didn't go wasted. And no, it was great. Thank you for that. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. <laughs>
Thank you. Again, like, again for two excited. for two literature professors, when you say like you know the rapture, it's it's now and not yet. Should, so we I all get even, that, you know. I need more graphs because it wasn't a footnote; it's an end note. So I had well, to that's, go. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I had to go. Yeah, wow, well, you really. Yeah. That, just a, at the bottom of the page. That's a publishing publisher style. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The um. So if 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 the basic idea, and again, you guys were teaching literature and we're concerned about the imagination, we're concerned about a re-restored right brain and so forth. When you're teaching, I when I was even taking theology, um, if they said, if I was taking a course in the apocalypse, which I did, Revelation and John, I think, um, if they said, you know, the, if the apocalypse is now and not yet, I would have just filed that away. I don't know. I don't know if I would have heard the word, um, you know, and then so, and the notion again that something can be one and many at the same time. When we're teaching imaginative works of literature, which is you guys, that's your job. How do we get to that apperception? How do we get students to that basic thing that this is tolerable? That the whole world, that the 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 wardrobe in into Narnia is through this basic apperception of something being one and many at the same time, mm. which is trinitarian, which is final participation because yeah. you know could you you could teach a man but isn't that the definition of imagination putting yourself into another person's place um the, that's the that's the training put yourself into yeah. another person's place simone Vey said don't or don't say you know we have this in common put yourself quiet this mm -hmm. put yourself into another person's place and again the notion that something can be oh big small for me it's the universe can we see ourselves as tiny in the universe with a, and, and also dominant in the universe if we scale down the other way that's the imagination this unified notion that we're tiny in an infinite universe all the weight is on that side it's killing the imagination and this notion of seeing how something can be one and many those are kind of three pillars for me how do we teach that perception mike your work is about raising the levels of perception but let's get specific on that right well i i think a great example of that is william blake's hymn jerusalem right I mean, because you can, I mean, because he was looking, I mean, he was kind of, in a way, his moment in London, lifelong Londoner, was very similar to our moment right now, because mm -hmm. he, where he grew in the suburbs of London, had been overcome by urban sprawl and industrialization, and he saw the churches were literally turning black from the soot. Just like, actually, in, where, I, where I grew up in Detroit, in the 70s and the 80s, the churches were black from, from pollution. They have since sandblasted them all, but but he didn't. I mean, he saw that he didn't say it wasn't there, but he also saw the imaginative reality behind it, where where Christ is walking in 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 England's green and pleasant land with Joseph of Arimathea, right? And that was more real to him than the than the satanic mills. And I think that's mm -hmm. the, for me. That's the that's what. Literature. In one sense, your answer is kind of if we read enough poetry, it calls on that part of our brain, it awakens it to your answer. Like, how do you approach that, Karen? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what I'm trying to start in the book. Like, you talked about if you had heard the phrase, you know, not now and not yet, it might not have even registered. And yet, it, it, it does register, just like, I mean, you may not realize it, but it, it gets in there, just like the phrase for my evangelical culture uh, like left behind like that phrase is so resonant and it says so much it teaches so much without even teaching it you don't even have to think about it and left behind just brings about all kinds of frameworks and categories that 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 yeah. 
follow. Yeah. So mm -hmm. that's a huge, you know, now and not yet versus left behind. I mean, it's just a horrible <laughs> yeah, difference. Yeah. 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 Big difference. Yeah. Fascinating. Right. right. And that's the thing. I mean, I, you know, we, I mean, the, just the, the two words for time in Greek, right? Chronos and Kairos. Mm -hmm. Right. Sure. And we confuse them in English. We confuse them just like we confuse right. words for love. Right. Right. Again, that, and I think that's where when you get into the notion that the worst is the corruption of the best, that uh, lilies that fester mm -hmm. smell far worse than weeds, as opposed to evil and good being 180 degrees apart. Mm -hmm. So it trains the imagination because you see that tolerance right. is the mask of forgiveness. You see that optimism is the mask of hope. You see that care is the mask of love. License is the mask of freedom. Um, and, you know, mm -hmm. whatever's passing for maturity nowadays, we don't even know what that is. But I think that gets to the imagination, too. But if you have a religious mindset, you know, a misplaced concrete, we might call it, right. that evil is 180 degrees away in the opposite direction than good, you're just not going to develop the imagination. Mm. Yeah. Well, let's, we should probably wrap it up there. And I just want to tell everybody, go get Karen's books. And especially this oh, one. Look, right. Check it out. She signed this one to me. <laughs> um, Subscribe. Not... Look at that. It's beautiful. Now, the uh, whole thing yeah. is, I didn't tell Karen this. Now, what's your husband's name? Roy. Roy, because when it came to me, it had his name on the return. Oh. I'm like, who the hell is this? Roy Pryor. I don't know Roy Pryor. Tell me a book. I didn't order a book. So I use those. I use those free those free return address labels you get. You know, so he gets them from he gets them from the NRA all the time. I think so. That's good. Karen Swallow Pryor, keeping hey, it real. That's Luke up, right Roy. Yep. But Karen, thank you so much. This is. I, I wish. Thank you. The only thing that can make this better is if I could walk up to you and hug you. Aww. It would be the best thing. But I thank you so much. I've been looking forward Fair to this hug. for more than a decade. Well, it was a delight. And may the Lord bring us together in person sometimes. I would so. love that. Yes. I know love nothing more. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Regeneration Podcast. You can find us on YouTube or you can check your Spotify, the Regeneration Podcast. And see you all next week.